Welcome to the Age Space podcast that gives you ideas, inspiration and practical help for anything to do with elderly care. I'm Annabelle James and I founded agespace.org, which is a one-stop online resource for anyone anxious about or caring for elderly relatives. Today, I'm really excited. I'm joined by Dr. Alex Bailey. He is an old age psychiatrist based in Westminster. So I'm ashamed to say, I don't think I really thought there were people like you. (laughs) How did you get into being an old age psychiatrist? Well, I went through medical school and then I did a job in geriatrics, actually, in, in medical care for older people. I remember I had to write a referral for an old age psychiatrist. It was a chap with Parkinson's disease who was also developing dementia. And I wrote this referral and the old age psychiatrist came onto the ward and she said, are you the doctor that did that referral? I said, yes, that was me. And she was like, it was outstanding. And that's all it took, really. (laughs) Just a bit of praise and I was there. And I still know her, actually, to this day. We're still colleagues. So I think I just recognised that I got to work with older people, which is what I thought I'd always do. I then thought I would end up doing stuff that was a little bit not run-of-the-mill, and it was helping people really at their most unwell, their most vulnerable. Are there lots of old-age psychiatrists? Is it a growing field? There are a few of us. So we're a recognised kind of subspecialty of psychiatry. I think the sad thing is that there aren't nearly as much of us as there should be. I think it's fair to say we've got a bit of a recruitment crisis at the moment, so there's lots of consultant posts that aren't filled we're not getting as many people going into training in old age psychiatry as we'd like. Although the younger generation that are coming into their general psychiatry training, we're showing signs that that's getting better. So we're hoping that the follow-on from that will be that we get more people coming into old age psychiatry because it is just such a rewarding specialty. It's such a great thing to do. And at what point are people referred to you? How does that work? I guess part of the problem is it, it varies so much across the country and depends on the services. So, for instance, old age psychiatrists might work in memory services. So they might see people right at the beginning of a journey with memory problems. So before those problems have got severe. I don't tend to work with those sorts of patients. I work with people as their dementia has got much more advanced. So when dementia is causing them lots of behavioural difficulties. And I work with people with non-dementia problems like depression and psychosis. So it's really varied. So I tend to see people later on in their illnesses when things are getting quite difficult for them or or those around them. And you presumably operate like any other psychiatrist. You see people regularly and you prescribe and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I've got a caseload of about 250 people, it tends to be, in Westminster. I trained in that job for a lot of it as well. So I've known some of my guys for kind of 12, 13, 14 years, which actually is one of the things I love about it, because I know these people, they're almost like family in lots of ways. And I know their family and what their difficulties really are. So that's one of the most rewarding things about it, I think. And presumably you work quite closely with other medical departments? Well, we we do. But I think part of the problem in psychiatry, which I think we're really trying to move away from now, is that I think mental health services have been really siloed away from other services. So whether that's acute hospitals, general practice, we've always worked pretty well with, but certainly other medical specialties, we've often felt a little bit divorced from because our trusts are usually separate. So my organisation mainly is a mental health trust, and it's very separate from, say, St Mary's, which is one of my local acute hospitals. So I think some of those divides have often 
not been helpful in the past. And I think these days we're moving much more towards integrating those services and working much more closely together. I imagine that mental health in older people is still somewhat under the radar, mostly perhaps because of what someone like me might see less as mental illness and more the inevitable consequences of ageing, like sort of bereavement, dementia, etc. I think it is still far too much under the radar. I think there's been a lot of good work recently in raising the profile of mental illness for older people and particularly around dementia. I mean, everyone will have seen in the papers these days that dementia is far more on the radar than it used to be. But I guess we still worry about those other mental illnesses, mental health problems that probably, as you say, don't always get pitched as mental health problems in older people. So things like depression, substance misuse, anxiety, psychotic illnesses. So we're still having to do an awful lot of work trying to raise the profile of those difficulties in older people still. And when I heard you speak, I think the thing that struck me was you talked about the three Ds, Mm -hmm. depression, dementia and delirium. We're going to do a separate podcast on dementia. I have obviously heard about depression. Yeah. I have to say, I thought delirium was something young ladies got (laughs) in tropical climes. But I I know from what you said then, it's a really serious thing. So I don't know whether you could talk us through a bit about depression and then a bit about delirium and the things that maybe somebody like me as a family member kind of needs to think about and how we can get involved. Yeah, well, they're both really big topics. If we start with depression, a big chunk of my work is managing people as they get depressed and some of the consequences of that. One of the biggest barriers I've got is that people often don't recognise when older people get depressed. And there's lots of reasons for that. It might be, for instance, that older people don't present to their GPs necessarily with those difficulties. Sometimes they feel ashamed or embarrassed to talk about it. I have to say there are some occasions as well when you might go to your GP and it might not always get picked up as depression. And the reason for that is it's not necessarily blaming the GP for not being skilled enough. It's that depression in older adults often presents very differently to when you're younger and it can make it quite tricky to pick up. So if you're depressed as you get older you might present more with memory problems for example and sometimes people get funneled down the route of of thinking this is an early dementia but it's not, it's because people are depressed and they can't concentrate and they're overwhelmed. Older people also tend to present with more physical symptoms, so kind of unexplained physical symptoms, whether that's bowel troubles, pains that can't quite be explained. And actually, we see a lot more of that than my colleagues in younger adult psychiatry, that they present with these as their main symptoms. The root cause underneath it all is actually more one of depression. And you alluded to something earlier, which was really interesting, about people not necessarily thinking that you can get depressed when you're older. And I think that doesn't just extend to the general public. It can extend to health professionals and it can extend to the person themselves thinking, well, this is what's happened. I've lost everyone in my life. I'm finding it much more difficult to get out, etc. Maybe this is the way things are meant to be. Yeah. That's just not the case. And we know that depression is really treatable. In fact, there's some evidence that in some treatments, older people might even do better than younger people with certain kind of psychological therapies. So it's really being able to find these people and get to them. And that's the tricky part a lot of the time. So we should look at physical health as well as things like memory loss and... And then trying to convince maybe the GP that actually we're not just talking about somebody who's been bereaved or everybody else gone or they're not driving anymore or whatever it is. I think depression in older adults is much more in the conscience of health professionals than it used to be, not as much as it should be. 
But it's not too much of a hard sell to say to a GP about someone you're worried about, their mood's low, I'm worried about their memory, they've got all these aches and pains that they didn't have. Do you think this could be depression? I think most GPs, certainly that I work with, would think, well, actually, yeah, I think that's worth investigating a bit more. You mentioned it. Do you treat depression in the elderly different to how it's treated in younger people? Yes and no, in a way. So we use the same approaches. One of the things that's brilliant about psychiatry these days is we're moving away from that image I think we've had of being, I hate to say it, kind of pill pushers and and turning to medicines for the answer to everything. I see myself more as a de-prescriber than a prescriber a lot of the time these days because I know that these medicines can be really dangerous if they're overused. They need to be looked at carefully as you get older, they interact a lot more and you need to be very careful of that. But they do definitely have a place. So we might use medicines. We use talking treatments a lot more. And like I said, I think there's some evidence that older people do really well in psychological therapies. It's really hugely important to look at social treatments and someone's social environment. So actually what's going on in their life? Who's around them? What are they able to do? What are they struggling more with? Are they getting out? Have they got any meaningful activity anymore? And if not, how can you put that in place? So there's a big move around social prescribing, which is where we met actually at a conference around that. And one of my worries is that I don't know if people are really thinking about how that's going to translate to older people because it's not the same because obviously the guys I see they do have more trouble getting out they're not as tech savvy all the time so I think those things need to be carefully considered it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all so whilst we use some of the same approaches as for younger people we definitely have to tailor them I suppose that's where our expertise comes in that you have to think about how people age and how that affects their ability to respond to illness and and treatment. That makes perfect sense. Bereavement, a lady who writes about grief, told me the other day, the trouble is old people are swimming in grief. Does it mask depression or does depression, presumably it's one and the same thing? Well, it's it's a really complex relationship. I think the one thing we try not to do is to pathologize bereavement and grief. They're normal processes that we all go through at different stages in our life. It's quite a powerful analogy that, isn't it? Swimming in grief. And yeah, I see people who have got losses all over the board. And it's not just through bereavement, through deaths of loved ones, but it's loss of role in life from retirement, you know, loss of of feeling as useful. Because our society still, I'm afraid to say, does not value older people in the way that it should. So all those losses compound. And of course, that is a risk factor for someone becoming depressed. But it's not, they're not the same thing. And it's being able to untangle a normal response to a loss. And actually, when that is really impacting on your life and is becoming what we might term as a depressive illness. So, in order to try and mitigate the chances of depression in an older relative, what can we do to try and stop it happening, really? Yeah. <laughs> at um, a practical level. <laughs> I know it sounds a bit glib, but I think talking, like, you know, I think it's really important that sometimes older people, it feels to me that the rest of society don't feel they've got anything useful to contribute anymore. Certainly not my experience of my day to day job. And I think sometimes people just don't get asked those questions. And it's just as simple as how are you feeling? How's life? Are things tough at the minute? Do you think there's anything that needs to happen to make life a little bit better? So talking is really important. In terms of mitigating risk factors, I still don't think we know enough about that in depression, really. And because it's so complex, the kind of underlying causes, whether there's genetic causes, there's environmental stuff, there's all the losses we've talked about, etc. I guess the things you can do 
are staying active as much as possible and not ignoring those things like exercise, which are critically important, even if it's a couple of minutes a day in the house. Really, really important. Somebody said to me the other day that they had to remind themselves not just to talk to mum about the pills and the appointments and the knee brace and the this, that and the other. But actually to have a conversation about the weather or what's going on in the village, just because it's very easy to get caught up in the day to day, really. And And then you have that that. role, don't you? You you become actually, well, people only ever talk to me about my medical appointments or my tablets. Is that what I am now? And of course they're not. Mm. The people I work with have got the richest experiences of anyone. (laughs) They've been on the planet much longer. And sometimes we forget to ask them about that stuff. Right. Note to self. (laughs) (laughs) I forget as well, so don't worry about it. So I think we've covered, well, scratched the surface of depression. We might come back to that another time. But delirium, I had no idea it was a thing. And it it, it really is a thing. It's a very big thing. Absolutely. Mm. The place we tend to pick it up is usually in hospital. But certainly not always the case. So I might be the first person to see someone with a delirium that's been missed, for example. The easiest way to describe delirium is if you've ever had a really bad flu. And it's so bad, you feel really out of it. You might have some strange experiences. You can't concentrate. Your thinking's all over the place. You feel feverish. Essentially, that is delirium. But what we know is that in older people, they're much more at risk of getting delirium. And when they do get it, it tends to be much more severe. And in fact, I think there's growing recognition that actually your risk of dying with delirium is significant. And part of that is because it is often missed in hospitals. So there's loads of work going on these days about raising the awareness of delirium when someone's an inpatient. I could talk for hours about this, but the commonest causes are things like having a water infection. So that really, really knocks older people around. They're a nightmare, aren't they? It can be really difficult Mm. and people will hallucinate. They'll start believing things that aren't true. Their concentration will be everywhere. And often behaviours will get really difficult. So people will be terrified because of the experiences they're having and they don't know what's going on with them. So waterwork infections, but it's other simple things that we forget about. Being constipated is a huge cause of delirium in older people. I would urge everyone to say, if you've got someone that seems more confused, just ask them if they opened their bowels recently. Because mm-hmm. it's something as simple as that, and the consequences can be really very, very severe. I think that's the trouble, it. isn't it? You think, you know, you think maybe urine infection, yeah. a few pills and it'll be fine. Yeah. Actually, it's terrifying and it... It's potentially fatal. Potentially fatal. And the thing that I think people still haven't really appreciated is delirium can last for weeks, if not months. So I certainly see a lot of people that have come out of hospital and I'm kind of managing what we might call kind of chronic delirium. So it's going on for months and months. So sometimes it's thought if you treat the infection, the delirium will disappear immediately. Often, particularly if you've also got dementia, that is absolutely not the case. And those symptoms can really last for many, many weeks and months. So it's it's a really important topic. You know how to diagnose it. Yeah. Again, for somebody like me with a relative, how do I help my GP (laughs) to diagnose delirium? I guess the big hallmark would be, has there been a sudden change? Because often what delirium gets confused with, and you can understand why, is dementia. Now, dementia, by and large, tends to come on quite gradually. There are exceptions to that, but by and large, it it comes on over time. With delirium, that won't be the case. There will be a sudden change in how someone's behaving or, or thinking or speaking. And the trouble is, it can go two ways. So you can either have what we might call hyperactive delirium, where people become very disturbed, 
might hallucinate, do things that are very unusual, sometimes quite upsetting for people. Or you can have what's called hypoactive delirium, when actually people will suddenly just become much sleepier, not really engaging with anything. And that's much harder to spot, even for professionals, that quite often gets missed. And, and the classic example is someone on a ward where they're not causing any bother. So often their needs might get overlooked, but actually they've got a raging hypoactive delirium. So an acute change is, is the biggie. If people are having strange experiences, so if they're hallucinating, for example, commonly they might see things that aren't there. It could be insects or other people in the room or sometimes auditory hallucinations, so hearing voices that aren't there. That's often another hallmark of delirium. And then the other biggie is a fluctuation of concentration or alertness, if you like. So people might drift in and out. So sometimes they might seem quite lucid, and then at other times in the day just seem really, really confused and out of it. If you've got those, you've pretty much diagnosed delirium, I would say. And what's treatment for delirium? Well, um, again, no easy answer, but primarily the treatment is to treat the underlying cause. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've got an infection, that will make you delirious. You need to treat that infection. But I think, unfortunately, some people think that that's where it ends. That won't be enough. So you have to provide loads of supportive treatment in delirium. So it's around people feeling safe, essentially. So constantly reorientating people lighting levels and that kind of stuff can make a big difference as well so there's loads of kind of supportive treatments that if you're putting in place whilst you're treating the underlying cause can really affect how, how well the outcome is of that delirium what we're trying to avoid these days is resorting to medications to treat delirium because they're dangerous some of these medicines so they tend to be reserved for if people are so behaviourally disturbed that they're putting themselves at risk and, and they need treatment to, to stop them doing risky things towards themselves or others. So it's treat the underlying cause, get it diagnosed first, and then kind of all these supportive measures um, to put in place as well so people understand what's happening to them. Definitely. Well, it's, it feels like it's a bit of a sleeping giant and yeah. we should all be... Paying more attention. I to think so. Yeah. Like that. There's there's a chance to really improve outcomes for people and costs actually. So if you get delirium in hospital, you stay longer, so you cost the health service more, you end up not going home and you might end up even being placed in care because your delirium hasn't been treated properly. So it's hugely important. So huge thank you to Dr. Alex Bailey. You can hear a whole podcast about dementia, which we've made with him this afternoon as well. We also have lots more podcasts that can give you help with money matters, care and some of the fun things like driving and holidays. So do look out for those. If you can rate and review us, it helps more people to find us. So please do that if you've enjoyed this podcast. Thanks for listening.